Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Tweets from uh, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe, at Premier Scott Moe, and uh, this one from December the 11th. Justin Trudeau and Catherine McKenna lied to Canadians. Is anyone surprised? Just before the last election, they vowed that they would not raise the carbon tax. Trudeau has now announced that the carbon tax will be jacked up nearly six times what it is today by 2030. Premier Scott Moe joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Premier, would you follow up on that and maybe then your thoughts on the Federal Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson retorting or replying to you that you appear to be something of a climate skeptic? Yeah, yeah, I, 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 certainly I will. Uh, thanks, Roy, uh, for, for having us on here today. I think, I think my comments speak for themselves. They did lie. Um, before the election, they said they weren't going to increase uh, the carbon tax, and they certainly wouldn't uh, look at doing it uh, until they worked uh, with the provinces. What they've moved forward with here uh, this past week uh, out of the Minister of Environment's office is a number of tightenings uh, in their climate change policy and a number of changes that are going to have huge impact on Canadian businesses from coast to coast to coast. Uh, looking at increasing the carbon tax to nearly $200 uh, a ton, which is what most people said they would have to do if they're going to use this instrument. They're using all instruments. I um, mean, no consultation with the provinces. Um, no, not at all. Uh, we had none until it was introduced uh, here the other day. Uh, you know, Minister Wilkinson, with, uh, you know, in all fairness, he's a Saskatchewan boy. He's to be, I believe, worked with the NDP here in Saskatchewan. Uh, but he, he should remember uh, the investments that have been made in this province in carbon capture and storage, enhanced oil recovery, the zero-till uh, um, uh, that has been introduced here that's sequestering carbon, uh, the methane investments that are currently being made. He'd be well aware of those, um, as well as the, the forestry industry that we have here that is uh, sequestering carbon um, as well. When, when he talks about his his uh, carbon neutral plan by 2050 for Canada. You actually can't do a carbon neutral plan in Canada without um, looking at the investments and the uh, the carbon sequestration opportunities in Saskatchewan. There's no climate skeptic uh, here in the Premier of Saskatchewan, um, but there, however, is a great degree of dishonesty with this plan coming forward with no consultation of any of the provinces, at least not Saskatchewan, uh, coming forward when the federal government said they would not. I could come back with what a surprise, but that wouldn't work. Uh, <laughs> Premier, let, let me let me just reference another tweet from you. And that had to do with a rally in Regina yesterday and what was said by a speaker about your provincial chief officer of health, Dr. Saqib Shahad. Right. There, there was some, some words said there that I was made aware of uh, late last night. Uh, and listen, there's, there's a rally there and people have... Uh, you know, all the power to them in the world to, to protest. And, you know, there, there's some, I think it's time to, to clarify some of what's happening uh, as well, um, you know, at, at, at a number of these rallies. And, and the police are, the law enforcement officials are using their discretion where and when they're enforcing the, the public health orders. 
people are outside and there's no reason to use a mask unless you are, are too close. And so I doubt whether there was any mask uh, masking uh, violations handed out because they were all outside. Um, however, you're not supposed to bring people together in large numbers. We're, we're 30 is our outdoor gathering size here in the province. I think they were in excess of that. There may have been some tickets that were handed out uh, to the organizers on, on uh, uh, with respect to, to that public health order. What I took issue with this morning was some uh, a few comments that were made at that rally uh, that were racist in nature, uh, were directed at um, all, all people that are first-generation Canadians or many people that are, are, are have immigrated from elsewhere in the world, but were uh, also directed at our chief medical health officer, uh, who has served this province um, very well, I would say, uh, in being the co-chair of the national uh, group of chief medical health officers with Dr. Tam. He served the nation well as, as well. He's working literally 20 hours a day in the best interest of not only himself and his own family, but in the best interest of all of the people that he serves. And he certainly doesn't deserve uh, to be that kind of treatment. And I think there's an apology that should be warranted uh, with respect to the, the individual that said those words. They're uncalled for, they're un-Saskatchewan, and they're un-Canadian. Premier, let me come back to the Prime Minister for a moment. Uh, you had a call with him, what, just days ago? And uh, did he say anything at all? Was there any indication that this uh, this uh, carbon tax uh, increase announcement was coming? At the very end of the call, he said, tomorrow they're doing their green, un- unveiling their green plan. The last words as people were hanging up on the call, he said that the federal gov- minister of environment would be unveiling their green plan. He was quite excited about it. Um, caught the uh, ear of uh, a few premiers, including myself. And so the, that was the first we had heard about it, was at the end of our day-long call, um, where the Prime Minister had effect- effectively uh, shut down the premier's request, all 13 of them, uh, their request for uh, sustainable health care funding uh, across across the nation to ensure that we can offer health care services, uh, not only through this pandemic, uh, but beyond. He then uh, went out the next day and, and offered... Uh, $15 billion for his green plan, saying no to becoming uh, an equitable partner with the provinces in healthcare the very day before. So uh, I, I was, I was, I was, I was actually quite upset uh, with respect to how this came about and what occurred uh, the day before with the, the prime minister and the federal government refusing to, um, to, to, to even meet again um, with premiers on uh, sustainable healthcare funding, but moving forward with um their, their green plan with no consultation with the provinces at all. We're on the phone all day with all 13 premiers and the prime minister. He could have, he, we, we could have, we, we spent all morning talking about his vaccine rollout. I'm sure we could have taken 15 minutes or half an hour and he could have briefed us on what was going to happen the next day at the very least, or our environment ministers could have uh, been consulted uh, like they said they would, like they said they would before the last election, which uh, speaks to the dishonesty of this announcement. We have about 20 seconds left. Do you have a sense that it's impossible to uh, to just exchange thoughts, ideas um, with this prime minister? It, it's, it's increasingly problematic when you see, um, you, you know, policies like this that are coming forward, policies that are not in the best interest of how we are going to recover economically in our communities from coast to coast to coast in this nation. They're coming forward with uh, a lack of respect uh, to the provincial entities, a lack of respect uh, to the people, the hardworking people across this country that are working in these industries, and 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 quite frankly, Canadians deserve better. 
We'll start with our good friend Daryl Bricker, the president and CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. They do a lot of great polling for Global News. And Daryl has a commentary for Global News, which addresses what government has done to deal with the pandemic and the resulting favorable opinion. But there is a cautionary note in my friend Daryl Bricker's column as well. Daryl, thank you very much for the time. And I just want to start, read a few lines from the beginning of your column. One of the definitions for twilight in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary is an indeterminate state that is not clearly defined. And you write that nicely sums up the thinking of Canadians on COVID-19 vaccines. Please follow up on that. Well, I think that, uh, you know, this week was obviously a very good uh, week for people who are looking for vaccines to help turn the corner on this this pandemic. But when you start looking at the, the, the small numbers that we're actually talking about in terms of availability and the amount of demand that exists for vaccines even today, but on our surveys, 20% of the population says that if you turn on the lights and tell me I can come in and get a vaccine, I'm, I'm ready to go right now. And that's 7.5 million people. And you're right, so for the public, its views on, on how of how governments are managing the vaccine issue will not be driven by the numbers of doses available or by promises about the numbers of doses to come. Opinions will be driven by what they learn about the number of Canadians receiving the protection of a vaccine and by when. So uh, we're, we're getting some spin here. Yeah, exactly. And it was one of the things that, uh, you know, I was a little perplexed by in the, in the Prime Minister's uh, press conference when he started talking about doses you know, 240,000 or 250,000 doses. But, you know, the Pfizer vaccine requires two doses to be effective, so it's actually half the number of people that uh, um, would actually be uh, 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 inoculated as a result of what we're getting by the end of December. And you just sit back and say, you know, if you're supposed to be managing expectations, which he claims to be doing, why would you choose to put that number out in advance? rather than focusing on the number of people that you're actually talking about. And ultimately, when it comes down to Canadians, it won't be about the availability of uh, the number of doses. It'll be whether or not I will be safe as a result of what I'm going to go through, whether members of my family will be safe. So um, we need to focus on the, the patients rather than the actual number of doses. Yeah, and they bought themselves some time, and you point out uh, in Ipsos' most recent survey for Global News, 86% already agree it is reasonable that countries with their own domestic vaccine production capacity take care of their citizens first. So Canadians are prepared to cut them a bit of a break as far as the slow arrival of the doses is concerned. Yeah, and, and also uh, what I say is that 66% of Canadians say that they're doing a good job of managing this. So Canadians are on their side. You don't have, they don't have to be spun. Uh, but what we're going to get into is a period uh, moving up into March which I, I also note is the anniversary. So we're not just losing months and weeks of our lives, we're losing an entire year of our life. That's when people will be asking the question, what's going to be available? And at the moment, the government is promising about 3, 3 million people will be inoculated. If, we're, if we don't make progress beyond that or we don't really show some momentum, then people are going to start turning to the government, especially if they're looking at places like the United States and the UK and other countries and seeing that many, many, many more people are actually being vaccinated. Then we're going to have serious questions about uh, how long it's going to take us to get back on track. And, you know, Daryl, when we get to uh, March, I think we're also going to see more numbers, actual numbers of small businesses that have failed in the small business sector. And it's when it's humming along, um, employs over 8 million Canadians. So when you when you add that, uh, when we start to see 
you know, hard numbers for small businesses. And if we're falling behind on vac- vaccination compared to, as you write, the U.S. and the U.K., that is not going to go over well. Yeah, exactly, because the, the purpose of the vaccina- vaccines is not only just to get us back and healthy and safe, it's also to get our lives back on track. So if we look to the south of the border, and even with all the chaos that's happened there, there are millions more. I saw it, you know, I was watching uh, the news this morning, and, uh, uh, you know, Joe Biden is saying that he's going to inoculate 100 million people within the first 100 days. Well, if we're talking about 240,000 doses in, uh, you know, a month, uh, it's, it's not really that impressive in comparison to what they're achieving in the United States. And as I said, it's about getting life back on track. And uh, people recognize that we have to have success with vaccines in order to do that. So the pressure is going to start to mount on the government to move more quickly. Mm-hmm. 7.6 million Canadians, so you, you point out, want a vaccine right now. No questions asked. Yeah, no questions asked. And, and, you know, we have this obsession at the moment with talking about anti-vaxxers. It's a really, really small part of the population. Uh, in, in our surveys, somewhere around 15%. But we put probably about 90% of our attention on that group of people. And by the way, they're not the people who want to get a vaccine. The people that we're really going to have to worry about at the moment are the people who want a vaccine. And if we have 7.5 million people who want it today and only 125,000 of them are going to have it by the end of December. That shows you the difficulty between supply and demand. Yeah, absolutely. Great column, and uh, always appreciate uh, you joining us. Daryl Bricker, President and CEO, Ipsos Public Affairs, and author of the greatest book for Christmas. Next. Our guest says the COVID pandemic is not a public health emergency. Rather, it is a public emergency. And these are two different things, according to David Redman, as he addresses how governments and public health officials have misfired on dealing with the COVID pandemic. Mr. Redman, or Colonel Redman, is a former executive director of the Alberta Emergency Management Agency, served as an officer in the Canadian Forces for 27 years. And um, former U.S. Ambassador to Canada, Paul Salucci, after visiting the Alberta Emergency Management Agency, invited Colonel Redman to Washington to address the House and Senate House committees on what he had put in place in Alberta. That wasn't good enough, though, for either the federal or provincial governments. They didn't really have any real interest in what Colonel Redmond had to say. By the way, great article, a great interview with uh, Colonel Redmond in the C2C Journal, and uh, you go to c2cjournal.ca. Dave, thank you very much for, for taking the time, and uh, would you walk us, please, through the fundamentals of how the COVID pandemic would have been assessed and treated from the very beginning had your in-place emergency planning procedures been implemented early in 2020? Good more, uh, Good afternoon. Uh, thank you for the, the opportunity. Um, first of all, I'd like to say that uh, every province in Canada had... Uh, sorry, are you there? Yeah, we're here. Okay, uh, had uh, in place uh, pandemic plans that uh, long predated this. Uh, p- plans are built by the Emergency Management Agency in each of the provinces, and uh, th- for instance, here in Alberta, it was last updated in 2014. So back in February, it became very clear uh, that the rolling emergency that had come out of China and was sweeping through Europe was coming our way. And the first thing that should have happened was those pandemic plans should have been taken off the shelf and uh, reviewed. And in order to do that, there's an emergency management process. In the Army, we called it the estimate of the situation. And if I could, I'll just run you really, really quickly through what that involves. 
Sure. Well, first of all, you, you, you take the emergency that is coming at you, and you ask yourself what's changed. Step one, you do mission analysis, and you define all of the what's. If you look at uh, a standard emergency plan for a pandemic, the four what's that, that were in, for instance, the Alberta plan are very clear. The first one is control the spread of the influenza and death by providing access to appropriate prevention measures, care, and treatment. The second is mitigate societal disruption by ensuring the continuity and recovery of critical services. The third was minimize the adverse economic impact. And the fourth, support an efficient and effective use of resources during response and recovery. So those are your four givens. Then you have to pull out all of the implies. The second step, you then consider all the factors. And so the very first factor in, in the, the series of factors are enemy-friendly, ground, weather, time, and space. And if you start with the first one, the enemy, the enemy clearly in this case was COVID-19. And what did we know in February? In February, we knew that over 96% of the deaths in China, Italy, and Spain were in people who were over the age of 60 who had multiple comorbidities. So right away, that should have been our focus. If 96% of the deaths are happening in that group, the very first place we should have turned our attention was at seniors' long-term care homes and places where groupings of seniors with comorbidities existed. But then you walk through the rest of the process. You look for options, what are the advantages and disadvantages, and then you write a plan. So you take the existing plan, you dust it off, you make it specific to this type of pandemic, and you write a plan which you then publish and you put in every media outlet you can get it to so the public knows exactly what the plan is to deal with it and why. That creates confidence in government. I put it to you that what happened instead was the mission changed from trying to minimize the impact of COVID-19 on our communities, and it changed into no one will catch COVID-19. That's what this fixation on the daily count, changing daily count rate, has turned into that the media and, and politicians are now focused on, the medical officers of health, because instead of trying to minimize the impact of COVID-19 on our communities, we tried to stop everyone from catching it. So we're, we're going to take a break in a moment, and then you're, you're staying with us. But before we take the break, you were in touch with provincial governments, premiers, federal government, prime minister, ministers, and you offered them your services and all of your expertise. What did you get back? Um, I got first, well, starting in April, I started writing to my premier. In May, I started writing to all 13 premiers and the media across Canada. And basically, other than one small answer which I got, which told me that emergency management had developed a lot since I retired, I had no response. Uh, Dave, so let me just go a couple, through a couple of things here, just to reprise what we talked about before the break. You offered your services you offered um, to, to work with governments, provincial and federal, on the plan on the emergency responsiveness or response. You didn't get any response or just tiny. You also say the pandemic is not a public health emergency. It's a public emergency. Now, politicians, I want to pursue this with you. You've said that politicians abdicated responsibilities and turned them over to medical officers 
of health. Why is this such a concern to you? And if I can just add this, Ontario, the Ontario Auditor General, as you know, has been very critical that the Chief Medical Officer of Health and public health officials in the province did not take the lead in the province's response to the pandemic. So I've put a whole thing, a bunch of things together. Can you sort it out for us? Okay. Um, if I can start, the one number I want to leave in everyone's mind, uh, all your listeners, 96.6%. That is the percentage of all deaths in Canada that are attributable to people over the age of 60 and who have multiple comorbidities. If we had paid attention to the numbers coming out of Europe, which were identical, the first step in the process, when you're looking at the priorities that were given and the four goals, would have been to protect those most at risk. I put it to you that by putting the medical officers of health in charge, they skipped and omitted that and went right, right to the point of trying to get everyone safe. So let's talk about those people that were most at risk. We knew the concentrations of those are in long-term care seniors' homes and seniors' residents and in hospitals that have both palliative care and long-term care for people with severe comorbidities. If we had identified those areas and if we had quarantined those people, those that wish to be quarantined, because I want to separate out, there are seniors who might have chose to step out of those facilities, but if we had taken the staff that support those people and had quarantined that staff, as was done in some European countries, the number of deaths would have been massively lower. And I'll give you the stats for today. Today, it's still 96.6% of the people who are dying of COVID in Canada are in that age group 60 and over with multiple comorbidities. 71% of the people in hospital with COVID are in that same group. And 64% of the people in ICU. So let's go to your second part of your question is, is why should the medical officers of health not been in charge? In any emergency, what you want to do is look at the impact on it on all parts of your society. And that's why there was four goals in every pandemic plan, the first one of which was to try and prevent illness and morbidity. Well, we didn't do that very well, did we? What we did is we looked at what happened in European countries and we emulated them. They categorically failed in protecting their seniors by going to lockdowns. And we thought if we locked down, but maybe a little harder, we'd have a better result. If you actually did the emergency management process and realized that the people most at risk were the seniors in long-term care homes, and if you quarantined those care homes instead of the whole population, you would have had a very significantly different result. By putting the doctors in charge, they focused only on the first goal. They omitted to look at the societal disruption and the continuity of, of critical services, and that's why we kept being surprised by things in meatpacking plants and, and in our power grids and other areas where people started to get sick, and instead of quarantining only the sick, we sent the whole staff home. We didn't, obviously, even consider the third bullet, which is to minimize the economic impact. We've spent $400 billion to tell people to stay home and to quarantine the healthy, not the sick. Has this become, in your view, 
more of a political exercise than a health exercise. And had we been using, had we put in place the carefully structured emergency planning and options, operational manuals, had we put everything in place at the very beginning, would our economy be in far more uh, stable condition than it is now? I, b- I believe totally. Uh, $400 million, $400 billion spent to, uh, to tell people not to do their jobs, to stay at home, and to create the fear to keep them at home uh, was not required. If we'd taken $1 billion and quarantined our long-term care homes for our seniors, the people most at risk, 96.6% of the deaths, are seniors with multiple comorbidities. And I'll give you another interesting statistic. For people over the age of 70 who catch COVID, if they don't have comorbidities, the recovery rate is 99.96% worldwide. So by spending hundreds of billions of dollars to tell people to lock down, we have affected the next two generations my grandchildren will be paying for this debt and servicing the interest on this debt for two generations. If the premiers and if the prime ministers or if the provincial governments and if the federal government today decided to start listening to you, what would have to be done? Okay, I, I believe that the steps are clear. First of all, we, we still need to protect those seniors in long-term care homes. Step one, we need to quarantine them immediately and quarantine their staff. And far as I'm concerned, the first people for the vaccine should be the staff that support those long-term care facilities so we no longer have to quarantine them. And by quarantine them, I mean that staff doesn't get to go home. That staff lives in a government-provided facility, and they work in shifts. So for 14 days or whatever the, the... requirement is to make sure they don't have COVID. Then they do a 30-day shift and they only go from the hotel that they're given in with free room and board to the facility and back again. And so if we can give the vaccines to those staff workers, we can release them from quarantine because the people who are dying are the people in those long-term care facilities. 80% of the deaths came from long-term care facilities. And I gather from from, from what I heard you say is that as far as the workers are concerned, in those long-term facilities, well, long-term care facilities, yeah. those who would have to stay for those protracted period of time, time protracted periods of time, it would be done on a voluntary basis. Correct? I would start with a voluntary basis, but that's why you declare a public emergency instead of a public health emergency. If you need those workers and you can't get suitable volunteers, I certainly believe you would. But if you didn't, then you could have people perform those duties. Uh, as directed by government. That's what a public emergency, one of the powers, allows you to do. That, to me, is the last resort. I think you're going to find that you have lots of volunteers, people coming out of retirement. We've already seen the surge of people that would would have been willing had they been asked. So, first of all, I think step one, we have to still, because this this pandemic isn't over. We're not going to have enough vaccines to vaccinate all of the people at risk and, and by that I mean severely at risk, those who are dying, for quite some time, it's going to be the end of the spring before we get everybody starting to move towards that, that kind of scenario. So number one, protect the most vulnerable, and those are their people in long-term care homes. Number two, 
make sure our critical infrastructure, including our hospitals, but not solely our hospitals, has surge capability both in physical infrastructure and in the staff. And I put it to you, when you hear at the end of November a medical officer of health saying they're just starting now to look at having surge capability in staff, I think that's about eight months too late. They didn't follow the operational planning process, and that's why we're here. The third thing you have to do is remove fear from the media. You have to actually, day by day, explain some of those numbers I just told you. Not everyone is at the same risk from COVID-19. The elderly with comorbidities certainly are. The rest of us aren't. The next thing you have to do is stop all talk about future lockdowns. Remove that from the public context. We have the public begging for it now. But what we should be showing, and particularly to our youth, our kids in schools, schools should never close. I, I, I give you the example. If lockdowns are so effective, then why does Sweden, which never used lockdowns, have the 25th lowest, the 25th rate of, of deaths from COVID-19. And again, all in their seniors in long-term care facilities, they admitted freely they didn't protect them well enough. But now that they have, they've constantly dropped down the list. If you look at Quebec, the, the province of Quebec, and treat it as a country, what you'll discover is that Quebec has a death per million of 879, and Sweden has a death per million of 751. Dave, I'm sorry, I have, to, I, I, have to, I have to stop the segment here just because of time, nope. but I hope you'll come back because I want to talk more with you about this. This is really significantly important. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Dr. Donald Gerson is owner, founder, president, CEO of NuVax. That's PNUVAX Incorporated, a privately held developer of vaccines and therapeutics targeting infectious diseases affecting low- and middle-income peoples worldwide. Dr. Gerson was a member of the founding group and chief operating officer and president of Celatron in South Korea from 2002 to 2009. Celatron is now one of the world's largest manufacturers of protein biopharmaceuticals. And Dr. Gerson uh, contacted the federal government of Canada, as the news story was telling us, and offered his services and the services of NUVAX to Mr. Trudeau and his government. Dr. Gerson joins us on the Chorus Radio Network. Dr. Gerson, thank you very much for the time. And what specifically did you offer the government as far as the services of NUVAX is concerned? Well, I'm very pleased to meet you, Roy. And uh, NUVAX is a large manufacturing facility in Montreal, and we have what's called level two containment facility, which lets us work on 
infectious diseases. So we could make any vaccine of any of the various types that have been mentioned here in Canada, uh, given the opportunity. So you contacted the government, you provided them uh, that option, and, and what did you hear in, re- in reply? And how, how long did it take, and what precisely did they tell you? Uh, well, I mean, we didn't get much of a response, but the fact is that we can do it, and, you know, and I'm hoping through your news story now that we can tell everybody that this is the case. We've got a large facility, we've got lots of skills, uh, we, I personally have made many of the kinds of vaccines that have been discussed on the news. And given the opportunity, instead of sending all this money out to a foreign country to buy vaccines, we could spend the money within Canada hiring Canadian young people to do this work, and we could make the product here for the benefit of Canada. How quickly and in what quantities, Dr. Gerson? Well... I mean, these things take a little while. There's no question about it. But I'll just give you an example. So I was vice president of a small company in the United States after the 9-11 event, and the U.S. government put out an RFP to make remake smallpox vaccine, which had gone out of production for decades uh, in case of biological attack, warfare attack. And we got that contract from the government. It was a large sum of money, but we made the vaccine and got it approved by the U.S. FDA in two years and made 350 million doses, one for every person in the United States. So to make the 35 million or so doses that we need here in Canada would be much faster. And there wouldn't be any issue of it having to cross borders or satisfy the particular demands and needs of politicians in other countries. (laughs) Yes, that's true. And, you know, Health Canada is an extremely good regulatory agency. They can be absolutely certain that a product is safe and efficacious before it's released. Um, but they're less bureaucratic than some other countries, so they can also be a great help to getting this done. Is Nuvax engaged in any jurisdictions outside Canada in the fight against COVID-19? Yes, we're working with several people. We're working with a German group on the therapeutic antibody and uh, with an Australian group on a vaccine that's already been through phase one trials. What's your assessment of the job that's been done by the federal government in ensuring vaccine manufacturing capacity in Canada meets this nation's needs? I spoke last uh, two weekends ago with the former president and CEO of Glaxo, and he was very critical of the government's not creating the kind of environment for pharmaceutical companies to invest money and to and to, and to generate uh, vaccine development. Yeah, he's about right. Um, you know, Canada at one time in the 80s and maybe into 1990 had Connaught Laboratories as part of, you know, the Canadian government system, I'll say it that way, that was sold off to Sanofi that owns it now. In those days, I was vice president of manufacturing. We made 85% of Canada's vaccine needs. And the only ones that we didn't make were the ones that we did not make at all, the only ones that were not provided. And we also made a huge amount for UNICEF throughout the world. And so, you know, that's no longer the case, I don't think, and or at least for local manufacturing. So, uh, you know, the other thing that we've missed is a huge boom in the biotechnology and vaccine industry globally and that hasn't grown in Canada as much as it has in some other countries so it's a shame that there hasn't been the investment to drive this forward. So Dr. Gerson just to repeat your company Nuvax has the capacity the capability the skills the talent the everything that's necessary 
to manufacture vaccines, the vaccines for COVID-19, and in sufficient quantities that every Canadian who wishes to be vaccinated could be vaccinated with a product that comes from your company. Yes. So for the life of me, I can't understand why your offer was rejected. Well, I I can't either. (laughs) I can't either. That's just the way life is. But, you know, the other option is for private industry to do it. I mean, there's other ways to do things than just government. So will you continue then to communicate with the federal government and, 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 and try to get this done? Because what you're telling us, I'm sure my listeners across the country right now are shaking their heads. Well, look, of course we are. And, um, you know, and we're also communicating with private investors and private industry to make sure that such a thing happens. And the most important thing is, look, the whole reason I started this company is, I mean, this is a retirement project that I've invested a lot of money into is to make sure that we have in Canada companies that can do this and make what Canada needs, which we're very happy to do, and to make what the world needs for underserved populations throughout the world. That's our purpose here, and that's what we're trying to do, serve Canada and serve underserved populations globally. A pleasure to talk to you, Dr. Gerson. Thank you for the time. Okay, thank you very much. Dr. Donald Gerson, who is the founder of NuVax, P-N-U-V-A-X. And I don't need to repeat what you just heard. But there is talk about how long it's going to take to get Canadians vaccinated, those who want to be. But we have the facility in Montreal, Dr. Gerson's facility, that could handle it. But the federal government said, no thanks. Not all infectious diseases specialists favor lockdowns of society as a way to hold back covid Earlier during the COVID-21, or pandemic rather, 21 Ontario doctors wrote an open letter to Premier Doug Ford advising against sweeping lockdowns, pointing out lockdowns are limited in their effectiveness and stop society from engaging in critically significant aspects of daily life. Lockdowns harm the economy, education, recreation, and vital human social interaction. Uh, part of the letter, uh, I'm quoting from it, economic harms or health harms, and uh, Dr. Neil Rao joins us. He is one of the 21 doctors who signed that letter. He's an infectious disease specialist at Halton Health and assistant professor in medicine at the University of Toronto. We're going to talk to Dr. Rao about the um, about the uh, the vaccine or the vaccines that are coming our way. Dr. Rao, thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, how do you feel about this this optimism that exists in Canada about uh, about the vaccines? Are we getting ahead of ourselves? I think there's something to be happy about, that we actually finally have something in limited trickle-like quantities, and that the data from the vaccine based on press releases and then based on the FDA uh, data that was uh, sent out for, for public review looks good when it's dealing with otherwise healthy volunteers and healthy people. The Part of it that concerns me with the vaccines is everyone thinks it's the silver bullet, and it isn't. First of all, as I said, it's a trickle of availability. It will take a long time even for our highest risk people to get it. In the meantime, we do have an outbreak in multiple provinces ongoing. So every day there's thousands of Canadians who are being infected who in a way are lost opportunities to vaccinate, to protect us and to protect themselves from, from the disease, assuming the vaccine works as well as we think it does in in otherwise healthy volunteers. So what I'm also seeing which concerns me is that a lot of people are saying we should keep restrictions in place 
until everybody has received the vaccine. That is the most concerning thing I've seen. And in a way, we're talking more and more about the idea of an immunity passport, that if you don't get the vaccine, if you don't demonstrate antibodies, you don't get the freedoms that everybody else would like to have. And that you'll have two groups of people, those who have had it, those who haven't had it, those who can travel, those who can't. Christine Elliott said something that was rather velvet glove in the last week, insinuating that uh, people who don't get the vaccine have a right not to get it, but if they don't get it, they won't have the liberties that other people will have. It kind of reminds me of the airport screening option. They say everyone has the right to refuse screening, but if you don't go for screening, you can't get on the airplane. Mm -hmm. We talked about that yesterday, and uh, I took some calls from, twice actually, from uh, our listeners across Canada and uh, found out how they felt about possibly having to provide evidence of having been vaccinated if they go to a public place, whether it's a, a store or a gym or wherever they, they they might want to go to see if they have full access. Do you have concerns that uh, that this kind of situation will develop? Because the debate is on already. Well, firstly, to force people to have something, to have a needle put into them is an unprecedented change. I'm not against the vaccine. I think it's great that we have it available for people, especially those who are high risk. But to compel people to undergo a medical procedure, it is a medical procedure, like it or not, is a very troubling thing. We should encourage people to get it, especially if they are high risk. But to predicate policy, legal policy, civil liberties, on the idea that people do or do not submit to a medical procedure is unprecedented in our history. It's unprecedented in a democracy. And that's what is concerning me. Plus, there's a lot of expectations about what this vaccine will deliver. The vaccine may not actually prevent transmission. It may simply protect people from the negative effects of this disease, especially if they have risk factors to do badly. So the vaccine is a public good. But to compel people to get it, that's where I put the brakes on. And just to give you an example, I asked some physician colleagues at my hospital, kind of a random poll, would you give the vaccine to yourself and to your kids right now if I had a supply sitting in my office? And most of them said, ultimately, yes, but I don't think we have enough safety data yet for me to force my kids especially to get it, because we know that kids don't actually get a bad version of the disease. It's just that there's a concern they could transmit it to someone who is vulnerable. So if you're giving it to young kids, you're really giving it to them to protect somebody else rather than to protect themselves, unless it's a child with underlying medical disorders, you know, few and far between, but they do exist. Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, data, and it's it's interesting because we're talking about more than one vaccine. We're talking about Pfizer, and then there's Moderna, and there's AstraZeneca, and there may be some others coming down the pipeline that are going to be um, approved by Health Canada. So you have multiples of vaccines that are available. And what I'm hearing from people, and I've been hearing for quite some time now, is we need to have data. We need to know that these vaccines are actually going to do what they are, are, are promised to do. And if there are multiples of vaccines, how will we know? How will we be able to decide which vaccine's right for us? Are all these questions going to be necessary to be answered, or will there be some sort of, um, I don't know, some sort of group answer that applies to all of them? I think they have different mechanisms and different designs, so they each do need to be monitored. There needs to be very good post-administration, post-marketing surveillance for adverse effects. And there is a bit of a signal with the Pfizer vaccine with Bell's palsy being seen more in those who received it. But the numbers of people who have received the vaccine is relatively small. Maybe that won't pan out. 
but we need to be vigilant. We need to look before we leap, before giving it to everyone. Now, if you give it to people who are 80 or 90, who could get a really bad outcome from this disease, who cares about Bell's palsy? But if I'm giving it to otherwise healthy kids in the interest of having them not spread it to grandma at home, then I think more about those things. So I think we have to weigh the circumstance. Now, if we're giving it to people to prevent transmission of the disease, to stop this outbreak, we have to know that the vaccine actually delivers on that. The vaccine trials checked if it prevents illness, clinical illness, and in some cases, ICU admission. Those endpoints were to some degree met by these trials, which is good news. We didn't have huge numbers of people ending up sick enough to be in ICU to say that it definitely prevents it, but the initial data from the Pfizer vaccine looks good. But only one of the vaccine trials so far has looked at whether asymptomatic infection is prevented because you might prevent clinical illness in people with the vaccine but people could still get the infection and not manifest symptoms which is good for them as an individual but it's not so good in terms of preventing transmission so measles vaccine as one of the great vaccines actually stops the transmission of the virus so does the polio vaccine but by contrast the pertussis vaccine does not actually stop transmission and nor does the flu vaccine but it tries to protect those who are at risk of a bad outcome. So it's a, sometimes the, the goals of a vaccination program can be different. And I think we have to re- remain critical as to why we are rolling out a big vaccination program. Now, if we can get the high-risk people vaccinated, in my view, we should be really be pulling back on all the restrictions because the whole basis for the restrictions is to prevent hospitals from being overloaded. It's not to stop every infection. I think it gets lost in the whole discussion. People think we're trying to stop the infection in the first place. It's to stop transmission. If we can just hold back transmission to protect those at risk from getting it until this lifeboat shows up, we should be able to pull back on restrictions. But I don't hear any warm tones about pulling back. And in the case of Toronto, we went to lockdown and the numbers are not even getting better. I think we had already done all that we could do going from stage three to stage two modified. We pulled all the levers already and there are no levers left to pull. So let me bring injury. Let me just bring up these two words that we've heard repeatedly in. I guess it's been a hope for most people. A herd immunity. Are we anywhere close to closing in on herd immunity in our society? Still a lot of debate about it. I don't think we are here. I'm not sure about Sweden if they really are yet. But I do think the fantastical belief that 75% of the population needs to see the virus for this to stop is incorrect. And this is why the models are repeatedly wrong. Many people seem to have immunity to this virus from other coronaviruses that are not the same as this virus. The common cold coronaviruses seem to confer some protection. I don't know what percentage that is. I'm not saying we should stop doing some of the things we're doing and that we should just kick back and be Florida, for example. But I do think we may at some point start to see a decreasing number of daily deaths and a decreasing number of daily hospital admissions. And that, to me, would signal some emergence of herd immunity. We could also end up with a third wave from this virus because there's a seasonal part of this. Everyone says the reason it got worse is because we dropped our guard during the summer. It's not true. It's just that these viruses have a seasonality to them. They do well when it's colder, when people are in close quarters together. And there's nothing we can do to stop it. Multiple temperate countries in the world are seeing the exact same thing. They haven't all screwed up and let their guard down. There's a seasonality to this, just like the flu. 
and we we may ultimately see a tailing off as we get to the end of like March or something like that, or early March. I would hope so, but I don't know yet. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.